Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Hello, my name is David Obelts. I'm the Chief Content Officer for Malcontent News. Today is September 23rd, 2023. Previously for the Russia-Ukraine War Report podcast, we did not do episodes on Saturdays. And we are going to continue to give the editorial and podcast team the day off on Saturdays. It is very well earned. What we will do on Saturdays is recap the top three stories covered by our team. And with that, here is this week's top three. Number three. Okay, well, I'm here at the scene of yesterday's rocket attack on the market. And just from the reading the signs and from what I know about previous attacks, there's no obvious crater, which leads me to the suspicion that it was a kind of an S-300 anti-aircraft rocket, ballistic rocket that has been repurposed to hit the ground. There's a lot of that goes on in Ukraine at the moment. There's a lot of shrapnel and that that's also indicative of the of it being an anti-air missile which its sole job is to create a funnel of shrapnel that will take down an aircraft and when you find that at the ground you don't get a telltale crater as you would with a, with a kind of cruise missile loaded with high explosives i mean that's my that's my analysis it seems to be borne out by the amount of shrapnel around and the lack of any obvious point of impact Ukraine has strongly contested a New York Times investigation that suggested Ukrainian forces accidentally bombed a local market in the frontline town of Konstantinovka, Donetsk region, resulting in the tragic death of 17 civilians. The New York Times reported on September 18th that Evidence indicated that September 6th incident in Kostantinivka, previously covered by the Malcontent News podcast, may have been an accident. This was allegedly caused by a Ukrainian missile system firing towards Russian forces from the nearby Ukrainian-controlled town of Drushkivka. Ukrainian law enforcement contradicts this narrative, asserting that the evidence they possess points to the Russian military striking the civilian area using the S-300 complex. They cite identifiable rocket fragments found at the tragedy site as supporting evidence. The Ukrainian Army Strategic Communications Center stated, currently, an official investigation is underway until the completion of which it is worth refraining from speculation and conjecture because this is actively used by Russian propaganda. Mikhail Podolyak, 
advisor to President Volodymyr Zelensky's office, emphasized the need to address doubts about Russia's involvement in Konstantinivka attack, as they could lead to the proliferation of conspiracy theories. He stated that Ukrainian investigative authorities would provide answers regarding the incident once their work is complete. The New York Times report drew from various sources, including witnesses, findings in Konstantinovka, video footage and local anonymous telegram channels. Now let's discuss this. While I am not an expert on missiles and airstrikes, I am well versed in information warfare when analyzing a potentially manipulative piece. It's critical to consider the publication date, sources, as well as the publication's reputation. First and foremost, the timing of the New York Times article is significant. It coincided with President Zelensky's arrival in the United States and his speech at the United Nations Assembly. This timing raises questions about potential ulterior motives. The article's headline, Evidence Suggests Ukrainian Missile Caused Market Tragedy, quote-unquote, cleverly shifts the focus away from Russia's war of aggression, reviving one of the Kremlin's most persistent narratives that Ukrainians, quote-unquote, bombed Donbass. This narrative has been repeated incessantly over the past nine years, even becoming a dark joke among Ukrainians. Another favorite Kremlin narrative is Ukrainians are bombing themselves. As someone who reported from Donbass and spoke to eyewitnesses on bombing sites, I can attest to the unreliability of such sources when it comes to identifying the weapons and attackers. Local residents, some of them, have even claimed that they were bombed not by Ukrainians or Russians, but by Americans or even aliens. Tragically, these opinions reflect the result of Russian brainwashing and nine years of living in inhumane conditions. I spoke to a lady in Siversk who was sitting on the smoking ruins of what used to be her hometown, telling me that there's no war going on and what we see around is the result of training. Regarding the findings... As noted by Alexander Kovalenko, the military analyst, the claim that a 9M38 missile was used is questionable. This conclusion is drawn from the cube-shaped destructive elements found at the market, similar to those used in 9M38 missiles. However, these same elements are also used in S-300 air defense missiles. Kovalenko writes, what's most interesting in the New York Times article is the version involving precisely a 9M38 missile. The quote-unquote professionals draw the conclusion that it was precisely a missile launched by the Buk-SAM from the fact that the destructive elements with which the local market was literally pierced are cube-shaped, exactly the same as those used in 9 M38 missiles, an exciting detail at the first glance. But I wonder why New York Times quote-unquote professionals failed to mention that exactly the same striking elements are also used in the S-300 
air defense missiles. Kovalenko provides a photo of an unexploded warhead of one of the S-300 missiles that crashed in Mykolaiv in his article on Medium. He also writes, two independent military bomb disposal experts who asked to remain anonymous so they could speak candidly, according to the New York Times, came to the same conclusion and said that the fragments and damage are most consistent with an NM-38. I, says Kovalenka, never hide my name or face when I make my statements. Moreover, Ruslan Leviev, who put forward the AGM-88HAARM version, doesn't hide his either. But New York Times offers us no names, writes Kovalenka. As for the video footage, it is another point of contention. Without delving into technical details... I refer you to Ryan Macbeth's analysis that suggests that the reflection on the roof of a car does not support the claim that a missile came from the northwest, from Ukrainian-controlled territories. Moreover, the assertion that people turn in their heads toward a missile's direction is, is questionable, as sound during shelling can be disorienting. In fact, I'm recording this piece as the sounds of explosions in Kherson are shaking the ground, and I will not be able to tell you which direction they are coming from. Lastly, anonymous telegram channels should be approached with caution. They are known to be infested with Kremlin bots and trolls, even targeting reliable pro-Ukrainian channels with constant Russian propaganda attacks. In conclusion, it's essential to consider the broader context, the timing and the reliability of sources, especially in the complex landscape of modern information warfare. As the investigation unfolds, we must remain vigilant and critical in our assessment of the facts. Number two. We are here with Don Arles, my colleague, who is a journalist for TVP World, the Polish television, who spent a lot of time reporting from Ukraine throughout the full-scale invasion and currently reporting and covering the current events from Warsaw. Don, thank you very much for being here with us. Well, thank you very much for having me, Zarina. It's a fantastic podcast so far, so I wish you the best of luck with it. Appreciate it. So now we hear a very important subject for everyone and for us in Ukraine especially. As we know, in recent developments, Prime Minister of Ukraine, Denis Mihal, proposed a compromise on grain exports to Poland, Hungary and Slovakia. And Ukraine currently plans to sue these countries at the World Trade Organization over unilateral restrictions on Ukrainian agricultural imports. At the same time, Ukraine suggests a compromise scenario to the European Union and neighboring countries involving verification and approval of exported goods. Could you please explain the details of the compromise that Prime Minister Denis Mahal has proposed regarding grain export to Poland specifically and also Hungary and Slovakia? The first thing I think I'd like to point out here is that 
Polish parliamentary elections are just around the corner. And the same is true down in Slovakia. Hungary, let's um, let's put in a little bit of a different box, if you will, uh, if we are familiar with the opinion of Hungary and how Hungary has been involved or not involved in this war so far. Here in Poland, of course, as I mentioned, the, the elections are just around the corner. And it has come out that, well, there is quite a significant amount of grain that has hit the domestic market here in Poland. And that, of course, um, causes prices to fall and causes more unsettlement, if you will, amongst Poland's farmers with them sitting on a lot of grain that they're not able to to sell. But it's not just grain. It's also Ukrainian food products. Um, They are also coming into the country in large quantities, large quantities or small quantities. That's that's still a matter of debate. Let's get to your question, and that is the reaction of the Ukrainian uh, government to this development that Poland will ban import of Ukrainian grain and foodstuffs. The immediate reaction from Kiev was to take Poland to court in the World Trade Organization. And while I can just say that that didn't hit home very well, maybe that wasn't the best diplomatic move at the beginning. And I think from the Polish perspective, at least now, the proposal of a compromise is not really addressing the problem. The problem is that there are large quantities of Ukrainian grain and agricultural products and foodstuffs entering the Polish market, causing problems within Poland's own domestic market. Now, Poland has been a staunch supporter of Ukraine ever since way before the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Uh, for several years now, this government has been supporting Ukraine in every every fashion it, it typically can and, and sees possible. Therefore, as I mentioned, you've got elections, you've got farmers, so that's a large community, and it's still a very large base for the law and justice electorate. Um, and therefore, you're going to see a move like this to try and calm people's uh, domestic fears here, as this is just one of the externalities, full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. One thing that's important to highlight is that the current grain ban here in Poland doesn't affect Ukrainian grain exports to world markets. That transit through the country will not be affected whatsoever by this essential ban on domestic imports. Yesterday, I believe Polish President Andrzej Duda expressed concern over Ukraine's action in the grain dispute and As he did so, he likened Ukraine to a drowning person and emphasized the need for self-protection for Poland to avoid harm from Ukraine's actions. What are your thoughts on this analogy? And how do you see Ukraine's actions in the grain dispute? Again, the politicians are likely to say one thing in Warsaw, another thing in Kiev, and, you know, they're going to have to bounce off each other in a reactionary manner. And that tends not to help the overall picture. Uh, What they need to do is be into better communication. I believe they need to have strategic communication, especially around this issue. I'd also like to remind everybody that when a rift arrives between two otherwise very, very good friends, partners who have the very same interests at heart, then these differences are often exploited by Moscow in several different channels to make the dispute look much bigger than it is. And we can't discount Russian disinformation and Russian interference in issues like these to be amplified the differences between the two governments' positions. So that being said, I believe that both Warsaw and Kiev need to come a little bit closer together 
to the on this issue uh, diplomatically and in strategic communication so that they can both put out the proper message. Personally, I am surprised that this issue has escalated to to the point where it is right now. Some experts I've talked to in Ukraine say that it's not so widely talked about in, in Ukraine and it's not such a big deal. Prime Minister Denis Shmyal has also, in one of his first tweets when he released the information that he was going to take Poland to, or Ukraine would take Poland to the WTO, he also said that Poland was doing this for populistic domestic consumption so close to the election. Poland supposedly soon to stop providing support for Ukrainian refugees in 2024. Support currently includes canceling residency requirements, providing work permits, free education, healthcare access, and family benefits. Uh, can you possibly provide insights why Poland has decided to end support for Ukrainian refugees in 2024? And is it connected with the current rising tension? Poland was the first country to offer Ukrainian refugees, first of all, uh, not only safe haven, uh, not only take down all border controls as the refugee crisis was unfolding in the first days of the war. Um, I was down in the area covering that um, at the beginning of the war, and it was quite dramatic. Now, to see, uh, I've lived in Poland for a long time, to see Poland step up the way it did in the um, in the first days of the war and maintain that and even double down and extend all of the possible social benefits that it can to, that it allows its own citizens, but to extend them to uh, Ukrainians who are fleeing the war and living over here, some of which have lived here since the outbreak of the war. Um, it is quite a fantastic deed um, by the Polish government. Uh, that being said, of course, these social benefits add up. They take away from the state budget, talking about at least over 1.5 million Ukrainians who are still in Poland and receive those benefits. Um, so it is quite an undertaking. I'm not a government official, so I don't know exactly what the calculation is. But most likely, again, the elections could have something to do with this. There is a little bit of exhaustion, if you will, to you know why Ukrainians get all these benefits from the Polish population. But I would assume that if they're going to be stopped in 2024, I, I believe it's after the first quarter, they can always be resumed. And depending on the situation at the time, I believe that the calculation was that Ukraine would be a little bit further along in the counteroffensive. We've also seen big waves of uh, refugees return to places like Kiev and others, especially during the first year of the war. I mean, we can remember going to Kiev and it being like a ghost town. And now if you go to Kiev, it's a bustling city once again. So um, probably those were most likely the calculations. And I wouldn't say that although it is set to end, um, and it's a political decision, it can always be extended. And remember, elections, 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 if there's a change in government, or even if there isn't, things can still change. Quite a clear picture here. A popular populist narrative that we all are familiar with in every country. There is uncertainty about trade ban. It's unclear how Poland will respond to a potential Ukrainian embargo on vegetables and fruits. I believe they're tomatoes, apples and such. 
Similarly, it is unclear how Ukraine will react to Poland's ban on the import of Ukrainian agricultural products. With this uncertainty surrounding trade bans between Poland and Ukraine, how do you think these trade tensions might affect the agricultural and economic sectors of both nations? I want to add here that Polish Prime Minister Morawiecki warned Ukraine of adding more products to the import ban if the conflict escalates. And in light of this warning, and the Ukrainian ambassador was summoned to the Polish Ministry of Foreign Affairs, if the conflict intensifies, what steps can both Poland and Ukraine take to de-escalate the situation? Right. Everything that you mentioned is absolutely true. And as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, this is strategically important for both countries, for both Poland and for Ukraine. Obviously, there's been some miscalculation either in Warsaw or in Kiev as to how to deal with this disagreement amongst otherwise friends. And until the governments are able to come together to stop this rhetoric coming out of each capital and then being um, respun, repackaged and capitalized on uh, on the other side, it's going to be a tit for tat. And the more we have of that, then the more we're gonna have a strain of relations, I believe, between uh, between the two countries. I was of the opinion just a few days ago that this was actually becoming more noisier. It was more noise than it was substance. And there are still a lot of questions about the size and scale of this problem. We see from official Ukrainian estimates, it's we're talking about uh, this year 1.2 million tons of grain to Poland in the first half of this year. Well, that's not quite a lot. In fact, if that's the truth, then it doesn't warrant this current political dispute between the two countries, because that is really just a drop in the bucket. Some Polish estimates put that figure about seven times higher. Is the truth somewhere in the middle? Hard for, for, for me to tell. But also, what's interesting from our perspective here in Poland, all the help that's been extended to Ukraine, whether that be um, for refugees, for uh, social programs for them, for all the aid that's coming out that's come out of Poland, and especially the military assistance, which has been very significant. It's, it's really difficult to see that really such a small problem in terms of dollar figures is causing such a large political dispute. And here you touch upon a very important question, which is a Polish arms supply to Ukraine. And yesterday, in the latest disturbing news, Poland will stop supplying weapons to Ukraine as, quote, unquote, the country needs to actively arm itself. Is it true? And how do you assess Poland's active arming efforts in this context? The question is whether that quote was taken slightly out of context. Now, naturally, Poland has been modernizing its army and creating a force that was still largely based on Soviet weapon systems uh, out of the Cold War to now uh, NATO standards and American and South Korean weapons, modern weapons. Poland is foreseen to have the largest land army well, on the European continent by the end of the decade. The Polish government has been spending billions and billions of dollars trying to modernize its, its armed forces. That being said, Poland has contributed pretty much all of its old weapon systems and ammunition to Ukraine and was the first to do so. And thanks to that decision by the Polish government, it was that decision that was able to, in my opinion, garner so much support in Europe 
it helped unify the European approach. This seems to be like a natural conclusion. Poland, GDP-wise, is only so strong. You need to look further west to countries like Germany, which is the largest economy in Europe. Now, you've seen them lag behind at the beginning days of the war, or in terms of military assistance. They were very reluctant to provide any of that. Here we are, more than a year and a half later, and Germany has made a giant leap in military assistance to Ukraine. The United States is still the leader can those countries do more? They certainly can. I would see this as a natural conclusion. Poland has given, contributed what it can. Polish arms industry will continue to contribute to Ukraine, but in terms, not a handover and donation, but in terms of purchases that are facilitated by a lot of the aid that Ukraine gets from the United States and others. Brilliant points. Thank you for that. And I have followed the volunteers from Poland delivering humanitarian aid. It was tremendous help in the beginning of the war and continues quite a bit. I know of these multiple efforts in Odessa to end on a positive note. Despite the grain scandal, the Deputy Prime Minister of Poland also mentioned that continued support for Ukraine is to be expected. I want to bring up something that you have mentioned. We cannot underestimate the Kremlin's ability to exploit any discrepancy in the dynamics, and not just Poland, but other neighboring countries, and using their ability to amplify anything through the mass and social media, which is divide and conquer. Any kind of disagreement, screaming that Poland and Ukraine will not be doing anything together anymore. This is just one of those issues that is really hard to dissect, even for people that, uh, like myself and like you, that sit here and are constantly evaluating the relationships that we have. An issue like this comes up, and really it's a golden egg for Moscow, especially before Polish elections. Really, we have to do our homework and we have to try and discern exactly what it is that's important in such a situation. Poland has been a very staunch supporter of Ukraine and Ukraine's victory against Russian aggression. That will continue to be the case despite the fact that there is a political dispute over these grain imports. It's in Poland's strategic and moral interest that Ukraine come out of this war victorious and Poland will more than likely support that all the way. Don Arles with TVP World reporting from Warsaw. Thank you, Don, for your brilliant analysis, and we will certainly come back. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Zarina. Number one. Let me introduce you to Marina Yevshad. Marina, I am so happy to have you join the team. Hello, David, and greetings to our listeners. I'm really happy to be here too, and uh, I must say that's an honor to me. I'm almost at a loss words here. I know that I'm excited. I know our audience is very excited. To me, that's also very exciting news, and that's something that I've never done before, so it sounds challenging, but I promise I, I'll try to do my best. <laughs> Marina, let's talk a little bit about your background. You are born and raised in Ukraine, and you have an amazing and in some ways a terrifying backstory. 
Oh, well, you're right. I was born and raised in Donetsk, which is now occupied, the city in the east of Ukraine. I went to school there and my family lived there. And later, when I entered the university, I studied in Kyiv, which is the capital city of Ukraine. So all my life is connected with Ukraine. In 2013, I got married with my future Elaine in front of me, with all the most positive prospects. But I didn't have a chance to fulfill it in real life. Because in 2014, the war started, and uh, my husband and I were forced to leave our native city, Donetsk. Uh, we became homeless. We started our lives together from the scratch uh, in different places. We had to travel in Ukraine and to find place to live. But up until now, I can say that there is no place as Donetsk. <laughs> That's my favorite city still. I know it's in devastated state now. I remember it how it used to be, and that's the best city in the world. Later, we ended up in Kyiv region, and in 2022... Let's talk a little bit about your experience in 2014. A lot of our listeners have not had the experience of waking up in the morning, and you're at war. Not only you're at war, but you have a combatant, a belligerent, going... Hey, it's not us. You're looking out the window and going, it is you. I, I I, see you right there. Well, first of all, you mentioned that it was like uh, waking up in the morning and noticing some stuff. For us, it wasn't like waking up and yesterday it was something and the next day something else. It was more like a process. The interesting situation about Donetsk region, this land is multinational. A lot of nationalities there fact is more than 100 nationalities and we are very tolerant to each other. And at that time, when a lot of people tried to show their pro-Russian position, we didn't think that it was dangerous at that time. We thought it was just people who tried to show their position and uh, nothing more. Actually, it was dangerous. Actually, it grew into something more later. At that time, we thought that it's something temporary. We attended rallies in the city, which showed that pro-Ukrainian position exists too. Uh, we tried to make us visible, but we were very surprised to find out that the news presented it in a very wicked way way. They showed as if people from Western Ukraine came to Donetsk and they showed their pro-Ukrainian position. But we understood that it was lie because we were there, we people from Donetsk, we who were born and, born and raised there, and that was devastating to read such news. And the main stance came from Russia, who said that we are not there, we don't interfere into your business, it's just your local problem. You don't want to deal with uh, so-called separatists. And of course, that was not true. Day after day, gradually, it became impossible for us to stay. It was too dangerous for people with pro-Ukrainian position. We had to go. We thought that we will be out of the city for a couple of weeks and later will return. But those couple of weeks turned into almost a decade now. You had to hit the reset button on your life. You went to the Kiev area and you ended up in... Hostomel. It's a small town in Kiev region, uh, 10 kilometers from Kiev. This city became famous or probably infamous is, is a better word for... <laughs> For our listeners, it became famous because the full-scale invasion started from us. We woke up on the 24th of February from the sound of explosions. Uh, later that day, we heard helicopters were flying above our heads, how 
planes were flying above our heads. We heard artillery working. And that's how we knew that war became something different now. It wasn't just a part of Eastern Ukraine, but it was whole Ukraine now. Everybody thought that it would be insane. But still, who's, who's speaking about sanity here, talking about Vladimir Putin? That's why we knew that something bad was going to happen. We just didn't know the date, the particular date. And we knew that uh, Putin is crazy about nice, beautiful dates. Georgia was invaded and the date was very beautiful, 888. We thought that probably in our case that would be the 22nd of February. 22, 2, 22, five, Five twos, yes, five twos in a row. It would be put in style. But the 22nd wasn't the day, and the 24th is the day when everything started. And for us, it was the point of ex exhaustion. We already knew that the war is coming. When going to bed on the 23rd, we were thinking, when? When? Is it, is it tomorrow? Is it today? We were not surprised when we woke up. It was like, oh, at last. I can't say that it was a relief or some kind of, of thing. It was just understanding that we were right. It actually happened. You're at your home. You're hearing helicopters, airplanes, artillery, explosions. CNN had a reporter at the airbase. Their fixer is, hey, we hear there's Russian. Take me there. And they're there. And they end up on the Russian side. They're with the Russian. You know, we're looking for the, we are the Russians. You're the Russians? And then they drove to the other side of the base and they were with the Ukrainians. And this was wild to watch unfold. But this isn't wild for you at all. This is terrible for you. I think you're right. It has to be terrible for us. But you're not a stranger to psychology. And you understand that in some dire situations, uh, our assessment changes. When you are in such a wild situation, you have different options, which are to panic or calm down and not to take in all the emotions. You try to analyze what's going on and you suddenly sunk into a mode of thinking about what to do next in the next hour. You don't think too further away. Did your experience in Donetsk help you form how you should respond on February 24th? The fact is, the, the fun fact, fun isn't the word, but still, our neighbors were in a state of panic. And we, as people from Donetsk, we understood what was going on. Because for us, this war started in 2014, and we knew it, and we followed the news. We were not in the epicenter of events. We cared deeply. That's why we knew it. We followed everything. But still, that was some new experience, totally. What did you ultimately do? We spent the day uh, in Hostomel. And in the evening, we heard the news that airbase was going to be cleansed by Ukrainian forces. And we estimated that if Ukrainian troops are there and airbase is here, and we are like in between, so we decided that it wouldn't be a good idea to spend the night here and to, to, to check if we are lucky enough not to be shot. That's why we decided to go and spend the night in Kyiv where our friends and relatives live. And that's how we left. Were you in this place like with Donetsk? Hey, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. We hoped to be back next morning. Wow. And wow. Uh, we, we spent the night in Kyiv, and uh, during the night we saw that already Russian troops were on land. 
not just helicopters and planes on the airbase, but actual troops with tanks, uh, with other heavy vehicles, they were marching towards our city. That's why we decided that we need to go back to our house and to pick up some valuables, some things, and to flee again. So, Marina, uh, wait a minute. You went back? Yes, yes, we went back. And I'm eternally grateful to that Ukrainian soldier who stopped our car on a checkpoint. And he told us not to proceed. It was too dangerous. He told us that the bridge was uh, exploded by that time and there was a tank battle in our city. Later, uh, we discovered that Russian troops were shooting civilians at the same roundabout next to our house. If not for that soldier's advice, probably not advice, even an order, we would be on that roundabout at that very moment and our car would be shot and I wouldn't be speaking to you today. I am certainly glad that you are speaking with me and our audiences hearing this today. You don't get to go back. It was too dangerous to travel west. If you go from Kyiv, there are two major roads that you can use, Zhitomer Road and Odessa Road. And we decided to go south to use Odessa Road. And that's how we, how we traveled that day, without any prospects, without any plans. We just tried to get away and to save our lives. Where did you where did you end up? We didn't make too far from Kyiv and we have no place to go. And we tried different shelters and everything was too busy with people. Uh, no place for us to stay. Our neighbors proposed to, to go with them because they had relatives in one of small cities in Kyiv region. And we called them and we asked if it was still possible to join them. That's how we ended in a house of a beautiful, wonderful lady who was a complete stranger to us. And we spent three months in that house and became children to that lady. A month later, Russian troops are defeated. They are forced to withdraw. Were you able ever to go back to your house? Yes, after the occupation was ended, there was a quarantine time for a couple of weeks. We didn't know if our house was still there. We knew that there were heavy battles there. But then this video appeared, the video from Ukrainian drone. And the video showed our neighborhood and we could see that our house was still there. It's something of the of the happiest memories from that time. It was a huge relief to know that you, you still have your house and you have place to return. Because by that point, I already make peace with myself and I understood that my backpack is everything I have. And uh, with our house, of course, it was damaged. All the windows were broken, there were holes in the walls and the roof. Of course, it was heavily looted by the time. A lot of valuable things were gone. And uh, I, I don't want to become graphic here, but there were some proofs of Russians being in our house. Probably everybody who follows this news of this war, everybody knows what, what Russians leave after them. But still, we were very happy and we consider ourselves lucky because we survived and we had the place to come back. You're talking to me now from your house? Yes, that's right. This is an amazing story. Really excited to have you join this fight, this fight to provide the truth, because the truth matters. That's a big responsibility to me, too. When I was thinking about this interview, I thought, what makes me 
stressed and it's not speaking English, it's not being on air, but responsibility that now I'm going to be a part of something which contributes to the fight. And the work that I'm going to do may influence our victory and may bring it forward. <laughs> You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.